The podcast you are about to listen to is not a medical podcast, nor is it designed to diagnose a condition. While there are medical experts on the show, any questions regarding medical care or concern should be directed to a primary care physician. Welcome to Game on Glio, the podcast providing hope, inspiration, education, and real conversations around the difficult journeys of grief and loss and being diagnosed with brain cancer, such as glioblastoma. I'm your host, Shannon Traphagen. If you enjoy our show, please consider writing a review. Also, share us with a friend. You can follow us on Facebook at Game on Glio or on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast. Or you can visit our website, thegameongleopodcast.com for our blog, insights, and guest snapshots. Season two of the Game on Glio podcast is sponsored by GT Medical Technologies and Gamma Tile Therapy. Learn more at gtmedtech.com. This episode is brought to you by Oncosynergy. Learn more at oncosynergy.com. Welcome everybody to a special episode of the Game on Glio podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us who speaks to the grief he went through in the loss of his father from pancreatic cancer. And then shortly after that, the loss of a very beloved dog that he had had for nearly 15 years. But before we get into that, I was thinking about this episode today and how to approach my own journey through grief and loss and where I'm at. And I share many tidbits and aspects of my journey with many of you. One aspect I have not really touched on or talked about is my struggle with my faith. And I'm not going to dive into this too much in this episode, but I've always grown up a very faithful individual. I went to Catholic school. My family is Catholic. I went to church once in a while. And I've always had a very deep connection to my faith. Now, with that, I will say that I don't necessarily adhere to every single word that comes out of the Bible because the Bible was written by human beings. It was written by man. And many of these were stories that were just passed down over the years and interpreted. But I've leaned on certain stories, certain Psalms, certain Proverbs, certain sentences out of certain chapters of the Bible that have in the past always helped me, always guided me, or just gave me a moment of clarity or insight Whether they were true or not, they can still apply to life, right? For me, faith always meant a deeper connection to God, to this energy that you couldn't really put your finger on, that there's something greater than us out in the universe. Your energy, your consciousness has to go somewhere. It doesn't leave even though the body is gone. And I always believed that. And for me, my relationship with my faith and with God was not so much in everything that I read, but it was more this sense of a gut instinct, a deep soulful part of my intuition that connected me and helped me communicate with God. And whether I found that in nature, by tapping into nature, by going for a hike, by meditating, talking to him out by the ocean or in the woods, I always found a way to tap into that, and I would see things in the world that 
helped me to understand my relationship with him and guided me along the way. And I always trusted that. And that was where my faith came in. Throughout Mike's journey with his brain cancer, we heavily leaned on our faith. We prayed. We held on to our rosary. After he died and after the loss of our very first dog that passed away the Christmas after Mike died, so a year later, I was losing more and more of those tethers to the life that I had. Jazz was our very first dog together. We had him for 15 and a half years, and Jazz was diagnosed with cancer shortly after Mike died, and he held on for over a year, which meant the world to me, but it was also the very first dog we got together. So the house went from being full of life and energy, of having a spouse and a partner, a husband, children on the way, two dogs, a cat, to all of a sudden, it was just me and my other dog, Clara, just the two of us. And that sheer number of loss, losing the miscarriages, the adoption, my husband, our dog, it started to really weigh on me. Even though I have done many things to help push me through, my faith has taken a hit. Now, this is not to say that I don't believe in God anymore, because I do, (laughs) and I still have faith. But there's this broken connection that I feel in my gut, and it's just something I'm struggling with at the moment. And I'm sharing it with all of you because this is part of the journey. This is part of the grieving journey, and it's okay to have these blips, to have these moments. I am trying to find my way through it, but that connection right now, that communication with my gut instinct, it's just off right now. I'm not feeling that same connection that I've always relied on and trusted in all of my years of being here on this planet. And I'm trying to figure out how to get that connection back to trust my instincts, to trust my gut, to lean into that the way I always used to. And as I was thinking about that part of my journey, I started thinking about today's episode and our guest and what he speaks to. For some reason, the movie Hope Floats came to mind. And I don't know if any of you remember this movie. It was with Sandra Bullock and Harry Connick Jr. And Sandra's character goes through a very significant loss and is grieving the loss of her family, not through death, but through a very tragic divorce, one in which the character of her husband cheats on her, has a relationship outside the marriage, and her family unit, everything that she's grown to know and everything that she has had in life is eroded away. She goes through a really dark period where she loses her footing and she loses her faith. And the whole purpose and premise of the movie is this idea that hope floats. It rises up. But hope, just like faith, they're connected, they're tied together. Interestingly, in the Bible, in Romans 8, there is this phrase that caught my attention as I was thinking about the movie Hope Floats. And I was just thinking about what other things talk about hope and speak about hope and what that actually means. And in the Bible, it says, you know, that we're saved by hope, right? That hope that is seen is not really hope. Because if we can see the things that we're hoping for, then we don't need to have hope. Hope is when we hope for the things that we can't physically see. When we believe in and 
Hold on to hope for what is unseen, for what we don't know. That connects us to faith. Faith and hope are tied together. It's holding on to this idea that things will get better, that good things will eventually come again. That is really powerful, but also really, really hard to do. It is not easy. But hope floats. It floats up and it brings us our strength. It gives us a tool in our toolkit to get through these times of grief and loss and hardship. That's what we're here to do. That's what I am here to do. I am here to give all of you hope, to give myself hope, to find a way to connect to that unseen goodness. And as I thought about the movie and I thought about this phrase, it brought me back to today's guest and our message today and how he found his hope and how hope floated for him when he found purpose and meaning in connecting to his father again. And by doing so, he ended up connecting to many, many others who had significant loss. And then he developed a project to help others move through their grief by what he did to move through his own. And it didn't happen overnight. It took years. But he speaks about that journey and about this project that's really amazing. It actually taps into nature, which is something that I strongly am connected to. So it's just such a wonderful story. His name is Daniel Fisher, and he joins us next to talk about grief and loss and how hope floats after a brief word from our sponsor. Imagine waking up from brain tumor removal surgery, knowing that your radiation treatment is already underway. That's how gamma tile therapy works. At the end of brain tumor removal surgery, your neurosurgeon implants tiny gamma tiles where the tumor is most likely to return. So instead of waiting to start daily standard radiation treatments that go on for weeks, you get a head start against tumor cells and get back to your life sooner. Gamma tile therapy is for operable brain tumors of all types, including glioblastomas, brain metastases, and meningiomas. It is a one-time targeted radiation treatment with fewer side effects and far less chance of hair loss than external radiation. Gamma tile therapy is FDA cleared radiation therapy for patients with newly diagnosed malignant brain tumors and recurrent brain tumors. Gamma tile therapy is tough on tumors and easier on patients and caregivers. Learn more at gammatile.com. Welcome back and thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Game on Glio podcast. Next, I'd like to bring in our guest. His name is Daniel Fisher. He is a father, a surfer, an animal lover, and the founder of the One Last Wave Project. Dan lost his father, Carl, to cancer back in 2019. And shortly after that, was trying to find ways to cope and pursue a way to help others and find purpose through his own loss. And that was how the One Last Wave Project came to be. And he's joining us now. So, Dan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me on. So happy to be here. So the One Last Wave Project is actually something that really just kind of formalized officially in January of this year. But this kind of came up after you lost your own dad. So tell us a little bit about 
how this all kind of fell together and a little bit about who your dad was, because that's, I mean, he's a, the big reason. He is the reason really why you started this project. Sure. Yeah. Well, my, so my dad was a Hungarian immigrant. He was an incredibly devoted father and, and family man and adventurer and dreamer and such a driven person in his career as well. I very, became a very successful architect and our bond that we shared from a very early age revolved around sport and adventure. It was something about pursuing your dreams and, and challenging yourself physically and, and mentally. And so we did all, all kinds of things all over the world. And so when I lost him in 2019, after an eight year battle with pancreatic cancer, mm-hmm. I, you know, I spent a long time grieving that loss and, and looking for ways to connect to him. And, and then finally had this idea where I wanted to take him on sort of one last adventure as a way to honor him and just decided to put his name on one of my surfboards and, and take him out there in hopes that, that it would feel like I was doing the right thing for him and by him and in the moments out there, seeing his name out there, feeling so deeply connected for that first time. And and so that's sort of how it, it, it went and why I decided to create the One Last Wave project, being out there and, and thinking that there was other people, especially during this time of COVID, who were feeling isolated the way I was and looking for ways to honor their loved ones that they had lost. I decided to put this sort of open invitation out to other people in the world and, and the project just developed from there. It was January, so it's been just over six months, I guess now. Wow. So how long after your father's death did you take his name out on the board with you? Just under three years, I guess. He passed away in March of 2019. And this was January of, of this year that, that I started the project. And, you know, it wasn't really a project to, to begin with. It was really just a way to get, to get him out there and feel like we were doing something father and son again. Mm. And then when I when I felt what I had felt out there and had that you know epiphany of thinking that there may be others who were in need as well. Right. The project started to develop from there. So initially, it wasn't it wasn't meant to be for as many people as it's helped. It was really just a way to connect to my father and um, feeling those things out there in the water. I I couldn't help but but open that up to the world. That's interesting, and it's you know the fact that it's actually been a few years since your father has passed before you really found this way to connect with him again. I, I, I bring it up and I, I put a spotlight on that because a lot of times those who are grieving loss and who've walked down this path, it, it does take a while to find ways to not only cope, but to find peace or healing. A lot of people think it happens in quick succession, but it, it doesn't. It really, it's a journey. It, it's, it is a very long journey. Yeah, it sure is. And I, I get messages sort of all the time of people who have been dealing with their grief for 10 years and more than 10 years and finally finding some comfort through mm. the project. I can understand that. I was in a place for two years, you know, more than that, where I, I felt very alone in that. I, even though the family was grieving and I know, you know people lose their loved ones all the time, you, you, I couldn't help but feel very isolated in that and, and alone that I was sort of the only one going through that. And I think you know, we spend 
so much of our lives from the time we're little kids learning how to love one another and and dealing with the ups and downs of family and relationships and whatnot but we're sort of taught how to love and learn how to love other individuals but but we don't ever really learn how to grieve until that happens and so it's not surprising to me that it takes people a much longer time to to find a way that feels right that that helps mm-hmm. and i think that the project itself has offered that to many people who never thought that that would you know give them the comfort that they were looking for in terms of the grief and and so that's sort of something that's special that's happened through it i think there's something extremely powerful about the water as well and i don't know if it's the symbolism or the energy that the water can represent um it was something that even in my own experience i mean mike and i loved the water. We dreamt about having a house by the water someday. We loved being out on the boat. We took our dogs down to go swimming at the beach all the time. The water was just something that every time we were on it or near it or heard the sound of it, even after he, my husband was diagnosed, we would play sounds of the ocean or sounds of like a babbling brook or just water, you know, out at a lake Uh, because it's just so soothing and so peaceful. And there's just something really powerful uh, about what water can do to heal us from even something as emotional as grief and loss. There's something mysterious about the water. There's something spiritual that's there. It's Mm -hmm. full of energy. And, you know, with grief, you go through waves of grief and being by the ocean and seeing those waves come in and out the energy behind them. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to be surfing in the water. You can be walking by it and dip your toes in and you can still feel the energy that and the presence of it there. And as you immerse yourself more, and that's what I found certainly in, in my experiences, I, I turn to the ocean a lot during those times and surfing yeah. is especially because it we're made of water, right? And if you can immerse yourself in that salt water, it sort of flushes you. It goes in and out and surrounds you and you feel the energy of the ocean and the waves coming in pass through you and can't help but feel some type of emotional and spiritual cleanse through it all. And I became deeply connected to it in that way and would go out almost daily to, to surf and just be by the water, whether it was with the dogs or being out by myself in, in the waves or even just paddling out and, and feeling the water. And I have memories of my dad being there, my family being there as a kid and, and all through our lives. And I still return to it for those reasons. There's something truly special about it. And surfing, especially for me, is something that came along a little bit later, but there's there's something truly powerful about being close to the ocean and any body of water, really. We have a house up in Vermont where my dad actually wanted to pass away. And mm. it's you know sort of a river runs through the, the property and we'd always go down there as a calming sense just to, to hear the water. And I still go down there and feel his presence there and very spiritual. Yeah. At the time of your dad's death, I know you talk a little bit about, you know, feeling isolated. You know, that's, that's a big piece of grief and loss when somebody dies. But at the time of his death, did you have people around you, a, a, a spouse, a, you know, a mother, siblings? Were there other people there with you at the time that he died? And, and did you guys have a sense of the end being near at the time that he passed? Yeah, I I wasn't physically alone really ever. 
my my family was was up there and he was diagnosed in 2011 and we went up many times every time there was sort of a setback and we thought maybe this was the end maybe this was the end and he kept sort of pushing through it each time mm-hmm. my whole family was up there i have a, my mother and my sister was there with her family and my girlfriend and my daughter at the time were up there as well and mm-hmm. some of the extended family so we were we were all up in montreal which is where he was in the in the cancer ward at mm-hmm. the hospital there and he wanted to escape that's uh that's sort of sort of how yeah. the type of guy that he was you know he was a dreamer and his last sort of wish was to pass away in vermont by his cows by the farm that he had built for us mm. and for himself so we were we were all up there and then so you guys were able to get him from montreal to vermont we were, uh, yeah. so I, I went up, I went up there and I was in the palliative war with him for about a month and we'd sleep every night in the hospital just to make sure he had the extra care. And he would get up every night and walk down the hallway at you know one o'clock in the morning, just to prove to them that he was fit enough to leave. Mm-hmm. And after about a month, I went down with my family and we set up the house in Vermont to prepare for it. Cause it's a, it was a cottage in the mountains and there wasn't weren't any really resources there in terms of doctors and nurses that, that could have helped in terms of hospice care and whatnot. Yeah. So we really were setting things up for ourselves. And then my sister and my mother came down uh, with my dad and were able to get him across the border. And he spent about a week there. We were taking care of him exclusively until hospice finally kicked in. And then he passed away in his bed that he had built and looking out the window at the cows. So we were, we were all there surrounded. He, was, he died you know, with his loved ones around him listening to the music he wanted to listen to and in the place he wanted to be. But I wasn't ever alone. It was, I think, more after the fact where I, I, felt, I felt alone because I felt it was only happening to me in some ways. Mm-hmm. Which is not uncommon. And for those who are listening, I think any one of us who have experienced significant grief and loss, it is almost impossible to put yourself outside of yourself and remember that this loss has affected many people. And because each individual has touched many, many lives throughout the course of their life on this earth. And it, it's, it's really hard when you're suffering, especially when there's bonds as close as like the one you and your father had. Granted, your sister experienced this loss as well and other family members and relatives but this is all part of the grieving journey, right? This is what we do. This is what we go through when you're grieving and, and you're not taught this. So you don't realize that this is what you're doing. You're in the midst of grief. And so you're not, you're not really looking outside of yourself. You're not experiencing this kind of outside of your own behavior. You're just in it. So, it, you know, there's no manual for this. <laughs> No, there's, there's definitely not. I mean, I feel like I'm developing one, I'm developing one as we go, but there wasn't at the time. It certainly, I didn't know how to, how to cope with it. And I, I, I I felt so paralyzed for so long in that and unable to really talk about it. And it was really once I started to share more about my own journey and what I was feeling and become more vulnerable with those around me. And then eventually with, people sort of around the world and sharing my story, the more I was able to talk about it and create this sort of community is when I started to feel, you know, deeper healing in in that whole process. You have a daughter. How old is your daughter now? 
She's going to be seven. And so she was only about five years old when he passed away? Yeah, I think she was She was four. Yeah. So she was there. I still have a video of it. Um, she was there the whole time with my dad, and she'd go in every night in the last week that he was alive and would sing him songs. And I, I still have a clip of her singing, you are my sunshine, just oh my gosh, with her hand on, on the bed. And she was wearing a snowboarding helmet and goggles at the same, at the same time. Uh-huh. And just uh, because that was something that he loved to do. And it was her way of, I don't know, connecting to him in some way. And I don't know that he, I don't know that he heard that, mm-hmm. but we did as many things as we possibly could to make him feel close. You'd be surprised. From what I've been told, the hearing is the last to go. Yeah. So you'd be surprised. He probably heard it. I, I hope so. I, I now remember a, a funny story that I had somehow found a way to reach out to Susan Sarandon, who he loved so much, and she was able to wish him happy birthday. And I remember playing that clip for him. And I think in that moment, he thought that she was in the room as well. <laughs> and uh, I remember him sort of reaching out as if he was reaching out to <laughs> to Susan Sarandon, <laughs> to Susan Sarandon in that moment. But there was, there were, you know, I'm so happy that I was able to be there in his last moments. And he was such a wonderful father to me and devoted in so many ways that I was you know, happy to, as hard as it was to, to see the person that you idolized mm-hmm. the most in the world be in that state and to sort of no longer be there. I was, it meant the world for me to be close and experience that with him and make sure that he felt everything that he could on his way out. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, and it's so very rare too, that somebody gets to have exactly what they want at the end, you know, to be able to bring his wishes to life and to have him out in that environment is is an amazing gift and not everybody gets that opportunity. I would have given anything in the world to have had Mike here at the house with his dogs and with me and with his family and because we were in the middle of a pandemic and because it, he was just so fragile he couldn't we couldn't move him they were afraid he wouldn't even make the short journey via an ambulance. So you know, it's that's a gift in and of itself to have given him that opportunity. So that's a blessing. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah, I'm happy that that we did, and it, in in many ways, it doesn't surprise me as stubborn as he was that that's the way. The way <laughs> he held on for that. <laughs> <laughs> the way that he went out is is exactly how I would have imagined it. He he lived the life that he wanted to and accomplished all the dreams of becoming a farmer again, becoming an architect, um, very successful becoming a pilot, you know, all the things that he wanted to do, every adventure that he wanted to go on, he, he was able to achieve. And he gave that to me in the last six months, even when he was really unable to, to move or do much physically. He, Mm -hmm. I think it was sort of 2005, we had gone to France. We were both big cyclists and we wanted to follow the Tour de France. And so we went there and one of the major stages up Alpe d'Huez, a very famous climb there we were supposed to go to and I got heat stroke the day before and wasn't able to make it. And mm-hmm. he ended up going, but in the last, it was, must've been seven and a half months before he died or something like that. We had a conversation. He said, let's go do that. And I think it was his gift to me to sort of achieve one of my 
great life dreams to, to cycle up there. And so he went over and he just had no business even stepping on a plane and wow. seeing him on the bike and seeing him, you know, fall in the first mile. It's just flat road from the rental place. He fell like three times and cut up his legs and he was in a no state to be doing this. And he was just so determined. I mean, it, it's one of these climbs that even the most physically fit people uh, have an excruciating time getting mm -hmm. to the top with if, if they can at all. And to see him climb that mountain was just mind blowing in, in the state that he was. And it was because of his determination in his mind, he was so incredibly stubborn and determined to accomplish the things he wanted to and to be able to give me the dreams that, that I always wished for. And he sounds like an amazing man. I mean, you know, it, it says a lot about his character. And I can tell you right now that Mike's ears, wherever he is, are perking up big time right now because he and I were, I still am. He, we were both very passionate cyclists oh, and followed the Tour de France, yeah. um, you know, that was religiously. And, uh, you know, we always took these annual trips um, down to Wellsboro, PA, and he and his buddies, it would be me and a whole group of his friends, and we would stay in this cabin, and they would all do this excruciating mountain bike track through the woods of Pennsylvania. <laughs> and so, yeah, somewhere he's saying, oh, my God, they're talking about cycling. Like that, everything else <laughs> kind of stops. So the fact that your dad, I know exactly which, which hill, which climb you're talking about in that ride, and the fact that your dad attempted that just to give you that gift. It's truly astounding. Yeah. I, I, I remember we, we got to the base of it and I, I said, dad, I don't think that you know we should be doing this right now. You're not in any state. And he just wouldn't hear it. He said, he knew I wanted to do it. And so he said, you go and I'll meet you up there. So I went, I made it to the top and then I waited there for about an hour and a half and still nothing. And so I decided to make my way down and I found him about halfway up, just chugging along and, <laughs> pulled up next to him and asked him why he was going so slowly. And he said, I had stopped and taken an hour nap on the side of the road. And there's really no, <laughs> there's really no side of the road there, but I don't know if he saw it as ever a limitation. He just took breaks when he needed to and kept going. And then we wow. you know, continued up for another five or six more hairpin turns and came back the next day to finish the rest of it. And it was just mind blowing. What a great memory. Yeah. And, you know, just being able to give that to me. And I think he did that for sort of everyone in our family, whatever it was that they, dreamed for he was trying to do that for them in his last moment so the least that we could do was be there for him in in, in his and yeah just remarkable but yeah getting back to my, my daughter was certainly there she experienced all that did she understand do you know like i've had so many people ask how do you explain this to a child how do you navigate that conversation and so i'm i'm curious you know how that looked for you again something i had never been you know in the place to have to deal with before. And at four years old, I don't know. I don't know their ability to really understand that fully. Mm -hmm. So in, in some ways, the nice thing is she was there. I mean, she certainly didn't see him taken out of the house. It was just, you know, he's, he's gone now to, you know, a better place. And eventually when my dog passed away, she was there with me as well. And I picked her up from school and came home and he passed away in my arms at home. And she was there just the two of us as well. So she, she, she experienced tremendous loss. I mean, her and my dad had a, such a, an adorable connection and she loved my dog, Rudy, as well. And she still talks about him to this day and has little stuffed toys named after him all over the room. And How long after your dad died did you lose your dog, Rudy? About eight months. So he was diagnosed 
when I went up to Montreal that last time, mm-hmm. he, he was throwing up and having a hard time. And I, he was also, you know, 15 years old and a big, big dog, a hundred pound dog. So that's, you know, a long time to live for a big dog. Mm-hmm. But we went up and I had to go to the vet and they came out after doing a whole bunch of testing and scans and found out that he had cancer in his bladder, kidneys, lungs, all over his body. And they said he's, you know, probably has a few weeks left to live. And I couldn't deal with that. I I couldn't deal with losing mm-hmm. those two guys in my life at the same time. It just and and a tribute to him and, and just animals in general, how incredible they are. He he hung on for another eight months despite some ups and downs and he seemed like he was doing much better. At a certain point, I was I thought this dog is just going to live forever. Now he's doing well again, and <laughs> so I had had this trip planned to surf the longest wave in the world in in Peru, and I ended up going to do that for a week. And I came back from that trip and took him for a walk. And that morning, we went out for a nice little adventure by the beach, and everything seemed fine. And then I I came home from school, and he passed away in my arms. And I think he he waited for me to return, and he also felt that I was happy again and in, in, a, in a better place after having achieved another wonderful dream of mine um, right. to surf that wave. And I think at that point, he, he said that that was enough. And that one, yeah, that one broke me as well. I mean, it was a year of, of just one, one break after the next. Yeah. Yeah. And, and dogs create, it's really hard not to get emotional because I went through the exact same thing that you did. Um, just over a year after Mike died, I lost our dog Jazz on Christmas Eve and he was 15 and a half and he was diagnosed with cancer shortly after Mike died. And we'd gotten him when he was seven and a half weeks old. So like you, this dog is part of your entire adult life. I mean, they're, you know, they've, you've had them since they were puppies and they create such an emotional bond and stability and you know, you lost two great men and it was the same with me. It was losing my husband and then our, our male dog jazz, who was a chocolate lab. And, you know, you go from what you think is going to be a very full household with children and a husband and animals. And all of a sudden it was just me and my one dog, Claire, it was just the two of us left and the house got very empty. The energy feels so different. So unbelievably different. And it's so hard to put into words, but it is tremendous loss, especially in close succession to losing somebody so important in your life. So my heart go- definitely goes out to you. It's, um, yeah, to, to you as well. It's, 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 it's hard not to get emotional. <laughs> no, I do every, I do every single time. And I, I was lucky enough to work from home pretty much from the time I got him at five weeks and, so we spent, when I say every single day, it was every <laughs> single day, all day, all the time. If I, you know, went out for a run or whatnot, I was, he was always with me. If we went on adventures, everywhere I went, he was with me. So I spent 15 full years with this being more so than, than any human ever in my lifetime. And, and, you know, the unconditional love of animals is something that I'm so grateful to have experienced, of course. And yeah. so when I lost my dad, Rudy was... He was there and all the the moments of silence, despite having a family and a supportive family was always there. It was the presence of a dog just to, you know, 
go and sit by the beach or to, to see their joy running through the waves or whatever it may be. He was such an incredible help for me to get through that. They're therapeutic. Their dogs are they so really therapeutic. Are. So yeah, to, to experience a loss like that after losing your father and, and shortly after it's, it's hard to not sit there and say, okay, I need a breather. <laughs> you know, I need to be able to come up for air. Can we stop with the losses for just a little bit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'm never getting another dog again. I know I said that to myself. <laughs> I'm never getting another dog and dealing with that pain. And, and how long did you wait? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got two and uh, I'm so grateful for them. It's, you know, they're never going to replace him just like no. when they're gone, you know, the next dog is not going to replace them, but Yep. They, they each have their own personalities and a unique way of, of loving you unconditionally as they all do. And it's just such a, a special treat to be able to take an animal into your life like that and share a life with them in that so many ways. And especially for you and Mike, having that connection through jazz is... Uh, it was significant to, to lose that bond that, you know, jazz was... I could look at jazz and remember everything that Mike and I did with him and getting him and having our first dog together in that experience and to lose that physical bond uh, so shortly after he died, it definitely, it, it knocks you. Uh, it really knocks you for a loop. I mean, it's the same when you're grieving a human loss. You know, it's it's hard to get rid of certain things. It's hard to let things go. I still have many of Mike's things. I still have all, all of Jazz. I have his bed. I have Jazz's collar. <laughs> you know, I, I, I haven't. I've got his rid fur, of and I've got his. <laughs> I, I, I recorded Rudy sleeping and snoring at nighttime, and I still listen to him sleep and snore sometimes. Oh, and, that's cute. I like that. Know, just uh, yeah, it's, but I, I don't recommend it because it's just it's like another <laughs> another watershed of it. After that, it's uh, it's nonstop with it. But you have to you have to find. Whatever it is, and I know when he passed away, I found ways to reconnect to Rudy, and I'd walk the same walks we did for about two months, just alone. And it it was excruciating the first few times, and I would get to the park, and I would just break down crying in the middle of the park, and people probably thought I was a crazy man just sitting there <laughs> crying, you know, without a leash, or you know, sometimes I did have his leash, and it was like he would be crying because he lost his dog, where you know, like. Uh, but I needed to do those things. I needed to force myself to be in those uncomfortable places in order to feel to feel him again. And yeah. that's the same thing with my dad. As I, I always kept putting myself. I went on the same bike rides that we did and the hikes that we did. And I remember carrying a picture of him up the the snowboarding run that that he wanted to have his ashes spread in. And mm. and that day was just like a huge storm and just a as he would have wanted, you know, just such an extreme struggle to get to the top of the mountain and hike through all that mm -hmm. four feet of snow with snowboarding boots on. And I just knew he was sort of looking down and laughing at me, knowing that if he would have <laughs> wanted it to be done that way, that it, you know, it would never be easy. He didn't want things, you know, the easy way he always wanted to work for it and mm -hmm. uh, you know, to experience that again for him. So I continue to do that and look for ways to, to honor him through, through adventurous things. Now, after your dad died, did you seek counseling at all? Did you go talk to somebody at all? Was that part of your healing journey? I, I didn't seek counseling, no. Okay. Uh, it may have been beneficial to me. I think I, I, I really was. I really felt that paralysis in it, and I wasn't, I wasn't able to, to really talk about it or share much about it. Mm -hmm. But when I did, I had family and friends and, and Rudy too, you know, just speaking, speaking to him, but 
you know, mostly family and friends. And I, I think for me, that therapy was really being in the water and talking mm-hmm. to him in the water and then talking to my friends and family. I called my mom every single day as he used to do. He used to call her every single morning and I took on that role of calling her every day and we'd share stories and talk about, you know, the good times and the bad times and just mm-hmm. keep the memory alive. And so for me, being able to talk and be vulnerable with my emotions there was what was sort of therapeutic for me. So now I know that you talk a lot about being very adventurous and outdoorsy and that your father was the same way. Were you always a surfer or was this something that you had picked up in recent years? And was your dad, did he have as much of a love for the water as you seem to? He, he did. He definitely did. He, he wasn't a surfer and I wasn't a surfer, but he was, he was a wonderful swimmer. He used to swim laps from one end of the ocean to the other with this beautiful slow stroke that I was so envious of because I'd <laughs> be flailing around, you know, searching for more oxygen. And he was just able to do it with such grace. So whenever we were close, even when we were in France, we came down off that ride and he, you know, went and jumped in the river and then we went on to our next destination and he jumped into the water there. He was always wanted to be in and around the water and for, for good reasons. Mm-hmm. In terms of myself, I wasn't, I didn't grow up a surfer. I grew up in Montreal. So I grew up on, on ice uh, playing hockey and that was sort okay. of my, my thing. And I, I think the first time I surfed was on the outer banks in North Carolina, mm-hmm. probably around 2005, somewhere like that. I think it was around 25, something, something close to that is the first okay. time I surfed and then lived in Australia for a short time by the beach and surfed there you know, a handful of times, but it wasn't really until I moved down to Rhode Island in 2015 that I took it up more seriously and, and doing it every single day. So I've probably been surfing, I'd say about 10 to 12 years, really. Okay. So after you took him out on your board, you actually videotaped that, correct? So I, yeah, I videotaped when I came back in because I, a lot of it was this the isolation everyone was feeling in COVID, it was a very strange time at, you know, not able to honor our loved ones or find ways to, you know, I lost a grandmother and, and two aunts as well and wasn't able to attend funerals up in, in Canada. And, you know, a lot of people were in a similar situation. So I think when I was out there, part of it was feeling that, that deep connection to him in that moment and then realizing the state that we were all in and hmm. looking for a way to to help. And I thought that there'd be other people in the world that could benefit from it. So it was that moment when I sort of came out of the water and ran to the, I left my board in, in the sand and I ran to the car, got my phone and came back and just wanted to, you know, you know, share that moment with people and share what felt healing to me because I had, I had struggled for so many years trying to find a way to feel comfort and healing. And I finally connected to something and mm-hmm. I didn't know whether it would resonate with other people, but I wanted to do it regardless and so recorded the video and put it up on TikTok that that evening and by the morning life had changed drastically. <laughs> it had sort of gone viral and, and people were submitting hundreds of, of names and people were reaching out about writing articles and doing podcasts mm-hmm. and whatnot and it all happened so very quickly for me. Tell us the meaning behind the One Last Wave project because there is meaning behind the name. Yeah, so there's really a lot to it. As a surfer being in the water, you often hear people yelling out one last wave. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as when you start to realize more about it, and as a surfer, you, you get it. But there's so much that goes into catching a wave in terms of 
you know, being out on the right day, being in the water in the right place, having the right board, paddling at the right time, having yourself be present in the moment and, and, you know, sort of blocking out all the rest of the noise that's in the world and just being singularly focused on catching a wave. Hmm. And if you can put all that together and ride along the face of an open wave like that, and the energy that's transferred from the wave to the board, to your feet and inside of your body, it's just the most euphoric feeling you could ever feel. Mm -hmm. And so when you experience that, you never want to come in. And so that's why people are always saying one last wave, one last wave. And I, I do it every single time I'm out there. I say, you know, it's getting dark. I should go in <laughs> and I'll catch a wave and I'll come into the shore and then I'll turn around and say, okay, just one more. And so it's just, it's, it's a feeling that you want to continually chase because it's just incredible. Mm -hmm. And for me, the connection to the project is really that there's always another way to honor our loved ones. There's always another chance to remember them. And so as is there's one last wave to catch for surfing, there's another wave to catch and to honor our loved ones in that way. So I was always looking for ways to do that with my dad. And, and this ended up being one of those two. So it's sort of the symbolism of the two put together uh, is why the name is what it is. It's really powerful. And the one last wave project really culminated in, in January and you have thousands of requests to take loved ones' names out on your boards, correct? Yeah, we have three boards and the fourth one is just finishing up now. Mm -hmm. And there'll be about 7,000 names on the four boards combined. How does it feel seeing so many requests? I mean, it must be hard physically seeing so many names of people who, I mean, just the sheer volume of it. I mean, how do you feel when you, when you see all these requests pouring in? Yeah, it's, it's a bit overwhelming in terms of that because I've made a commitment from the beginning to respond to each submission, each family member who submits a loved one mm -hmm. to respond to them individually and personally. Because to me, it's not just the submission of a name that you can automate. I often get pages, emails of stories and video footage of them and pictures and eulogies and whatnot. So I really get to understand each individual that's on the board and out of respect and honor for those individuals, I want to connect personally with the families. At the same time, I get to do something that I love and share that with the world while at the same time taking their loved ones out there. So for me, there's a lot more positivity about doing that than there is the weight of the emotional side of it in terms mm -hmm. of connecting. And I get asked this question a lot and it's rightfully so because when you read these stories, I mean, any one of them is just mm -hmm. so... It's, it's hard. It's heavy. It's it's hard. Yeah. It's heavy. It's hard to to go through and read all of them. But it's very important for me to really understand that. I get asked the same question quite a bit. Like, how do you stay immersed in of course. the brain cancer community and doing this podcast and hearing all these stories of grief and loss? And how do you do that? And it's that reminder that you're doing something greater than, you know, as heavy and hard as it can be. You're offering something to somebody else. You're, you're offering a gift that they may not get otherwise. That's exactly, yeah. I'll, I'll read the story and connect emotionally to it and to the family. But then I smile and think of 
their loved one being out there on the board and I'm excited to get them on the board and take them out and show them how it feels to be out there surfing and share that with the family. And I've, I've met many families who have come and seen the boards and just to see the, the joy in their faces when they get a chance to see that and the stories that they share. Do you handwrite every single name on the board? Every single name. Wow. Yeah. So the, the, well, the first board I did all myself, it was just an old board I had and I stripped it and spray painted it and put Sharpie to it in terms of the names. Mm-hmm. Then as all these names came in and I had thousands and thousands of names, I know I needed a bigger board. And so I looked for surfboard shapers to make these boards. And so the one that we had, the second board we had was made in New Jersey by a guy called Aaron Jameson. And so he actually built the board and wrote the names on that board. And I had to go pick it up. It was about a 12 hour round trip or something to get that board. Oh, wow. And then the third board I made locally uh, and I was able to put the names on that board again, and I'll probably continue to do that. It's easier when I'm able to take the time. It takes four to five days to get the 2000 names on there. So it's really standing over the board for four or five days, putting each of those names. But you're connecting to each of those names as you're writing it down. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I remember so many of the stories, you know, as I write the names down and remember the submission of it. And so it, it takes time with each one, each one I sort of pause to and then write their name on. And it, it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's important for me to have that. I mean, the boards are hand-shaped. So the whole process from beginning to end, from the time the board is cut and shaped to me etching the names onto it, to taking it out and my, my body, my feet on the board, taking them out into the water. Everything is, is sort of a personal approach to it. And that's, that was important to me to have that because you are honoring someone in, in, in a, it's a, well, it's a unique way. It's still something that we do to honor the ones that we've lost. And I wanted to make it as personal as possible. So now what is your daughter and your family, your sister, what do they think about this project and, and how how much it's taken off? Yeah, they're, they're, my daughter doesn't really understand, I guess the magnitude (laughs) of it all, but she, she loves the one last way project. She always talks about it and she's actually surfed. She's surfed that second board that was the one we had made. She, she was part her. of the, the, the ESPN documentary a bit. She wasn't in the documentary, but she was there that day. And we went out and paddled together and uh, we sort of go out surfing all the time. But she always talks about it. And I think it's, you know, she talks about helping other people and how she wants to take it over when she's older and, you know, help people doing this and that. So it, I think it's had a real positive impact on her. And I think it helps her feel connected to the project, to feel connected to my dad and those who we've lost as well. And just, mm-hmm. you know, know that there's ways to, to cope with that when you are. And I think that's something that she's learning and something that I never had an opportunity to learn. So I'm grateful to share that with her. Outside of the One Last Wave project, and and you've mentioned a few other things that you do um, outside of surfing, but are there other ways that you find that help you cope and heal? Or do you think, is surfing really what has kind of grounded you in the space that you're currently in? Surfing is something that's I can do every single day and it's close to me. So it's easy to do and so extremely healing. Before I really reached out to that in that way, I'd always, you know, connected through physical activity because it was something that my dad did, that we did together, that he always used as sort of a coping mechanism as well. We honor him as well on birthdays and holidays and light candles and share stories and tell those sort of funny stories, just a way of keeping his memory alive. So for me, it's it's talking about it again, being vulnerable with my emotions and, and really sharing them so that they don't get stuck in there. And at the same time, working on the physical side as well and getting out there and doing things that I love and that he loved and that challenged me and that remind me of him. I was just up in Vermont 
you know, driving his tractor and cutting the grass and, you know, talking to him when I was out there and I took his bike up another big climb there up J peak. Mm-hmm. And it was something that, you know, we had done many times before and it's another excruciating climb at the top. <laughs> and the whole way up, I was, I was talking to him and I, I said, come on, dad, we're going to do this. We got this. And I just, I imagine him being there next to me or in front of me and pushing him along as I did in the last few years. And what do you think your dad would say about the one last wave project? He might not say anything at all. (laughs) 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 So I'm being honest with you. He was, my dad was, I mean, he was, when I say he was, he was a very successful architect. He sort of redid the whole Brooklyn skyline and, you know, he, he, he accomplished so many things in his life, but he was, he was never one to ever talk about any of his accomplishments. He was such a humble guy Mm. and he just had his head down and did his thing. So I think at some point he might say, you know, good job. And that, (laughs) (laughs) that may be it, but I, but I know, (laughs) yeah, if that, but I know deep down that he would be proud of what, what is happening here. And then, and that we're helping other people as well. And, Mm -hmm. and that we're sort of honoring the bond that we had. And I think, you know, he'd be happy to be out there doing those things with me again. And that's, that's all I hoped for is Mm -hmm. just to have that, that connection to him in that way. But I don't think that he'd say much otherwise. That's just who he was. He, he didn't need the recognition for it. And that was a wonderful lesson that he shared with me. He just, he worked and helped other people as much as he could. What do you hope for over the next couple of years? How will this continue to grow? And what would you like to see over the next couple of years? Well, one thing that I, I hope as it continues to grow, that I, I don't lose the opportunity to, to connect personally with each person who submits a, a name. Mm. That's been so extremely important to me. And it, it's one of the challenges, I think, with, with growing the project. You know, it's obviously a, we're connected through this universal human experience of death. Mm-hmm. And that's always going to be there. So you know, millions and millions of people could certainly submit names and I just hope that as it does grow, that I'm able to find ways to, to be able to still connect to those individuals. But my, but my hope outside of that is, is to find ways to connect to other people and around the world. And one of those is having the boards shaped in different locations. So right now it's Rhode Island and I'm surfing the boards in Rhode Island and it's the ocean. We're all connected through the ocean. And that is certainly a wonderful experience. And I think there's other opportunities to help other communities out there by having boards shaped in a different location in the world, whether someone wanted to surf in or be in the water in South Africa or Australia or the West coast or South America, wherever it may be, you know, there's, there's people submitting from all around the world. And I'd, I'd like to be able to honor where their loved ones would like to be. And so the hope is to do that. With that, how are you doing with your grief and loss today as it stands right now? How do you feel you are in your journey, in your process outside of the One Last Wave project? I'm grateful for what it's been able to help me with. Mm-hmm. I think I'm doing much better until I start talking about my dog with you. Then I, <laughs> <laughs> I go right, right back into it and realize there's still so much pain there. But it is, you know, that's the pain is always going to be there. It'll, it'll, it'll never really leave. I, I talk yeah. about this often too. I, th- I think, especially with my dad, that that last connection to him was the pain of the loss, and I held on to that pain for so long as sort of the only way that we connected because it was the last feeling that I felt with him. Right. But but when I 
started to look outside of that and look at other ways that we connected with each other through adventure and the stories that we shared and all the memories and the fun times and the funny times, mm-hmm. you know, I was able to lean more into the love that we shared and, and honor that side of it. And so that's been my focus since then is, is really finding ways to, to connect to him. And I continuously do that again, like taking the bike up last weekend, you know, was another thing. And I, as I'm riding or as I'm on the tractor, I, I get emotional again. Cause I know that, that the pain is still inside there. The grief journey continues. It doesn't ever end, but mm-hmm. being able to be open with it, having a better understanding of what helps me cope with it and just getting a chance to talk to other people and realize that I'm not alone in it as I had felt for so long. And that I'm part of this community now that we've created of people who are grieving and supporting each other. It's been extremely helpful for me and, and for them as well. So I'm much further along because of the project, but don't ask me about my dog. Cause then I'll realize, <laughs> I'll realize exactly where I am. It's I, I, I completely I'm right there with you, lockstep. Um, I didn't realize how many emotions were still there with the loss of my dog and um, some other losses that Mike and I had faced as well before him. So, yeah, you know, it's it's amazing what crops up. But that's the whole point, right, is that sometimes it just creeps up and it smacks you in the face and you realize, ooh, this is a hard moment. And then there's other moments where all of a sudden you're like, okay, I, f- I feel pretty good and I'm doing okay. And, and I think the biggest thing is that you have found purpose and you've built this community and it's exactly what my goal was with the podcast and, you know, a fundraiser that we do now. And it's creating and connecting to a community and realizing that you really aren't alone. And even though every grief journey is individual, you're not by yourself. And that is profound in and of itself. And the work of the One Last Wave Project is just, it's amazing and it's touching. And I was in awe of just the amount of work and personal attention you put into it and how unique and intricate this project is to you and all of those who put in requests to you. So I think it's absolutely tremendous what you're doing and we need more stuff like this in the community. And this is why, you know, I kind of combine grief and loss topics with brain cancer topics because they go hand in hand and they're both very difficult journeys and grief and loss is just something that, especially young grief and loss, you know, when you're younger dealing with a significant loss, there's not enough conversation around it. And so to do what you're doing to connect people globally through their grief journeys is just outstanding. Well, thank you so much. I'm extremely proud of it for what we've been able to accomplish so far. And again, it's, it's, it's helped me tremendously as well. It's grief is, it's it's a, a journey that I continue to learn with every single day and with every single person that I speak to and hear about their Mm -hmm. loss and how they're coping with it. It's, it's a never ending lesson in it all. And, And very, very similar to how it is out there in the waves, really, you know, there's the waves of grief and, and the waves of the ocean. And sometimes they will be, you know, chaotic and crashing down upon you. And sometimes you'll be riding them to the greatest feelings of your life. And mm-hmm. it's it, the symbolism there for a reason. It just, it, it made so much sense for the project. And I, I'm so grateful that it's been able to help so many people. And thank you for 
kindness in sharing it and, and your words for as well. So now if somebody wanted to learn more about your project or to submit a name, where can people find you? So the website would be the best place of contact first, and that's onelastwaveproject.com. And then we also have social media accounts. Instagram is One Last Wave Project, and Twitter is One Last Wave, and TikTok is One Last Wave. But I always try to direct people to the website as a way to sort of, you know, you're allowed to share more on there and, and type whatever you like in terms of the story and, and connect with me there, and I'll respond to you personally as well. Okay. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and for sharing your emotions. I think this is such a great project and there are just so many unique things about this. So for all of you listening, if you want to learn more, you can visit Dan at any of the social media pages that he has listed in his website. And with that, we will be right back. Oncos Energy is a biotechnology company that develops therapeutics to dramatically improve the standard of care for patients suffering from the worst cancers. Founded by physicians frustrated with the limited treatment options available to brain cancer patients, Oncos Energy is now on a mission to develop better treatments for those battling brain cancer. Oncos Energy's passion and drive have led to the prioritized development of their leading therapeutic OS2966 for treatment of glioblastoma. OS2966 works by blocking a key receptor that manages cancer-promoting communications between tumor cells and their surroundings. Based on encouraging preclinical data, Oncosynergy has now launched a phase one clinical trial for treatment of recurrent glioblastoma. The trial is currently enrolling patients at Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa, Florida. Learn more about Oncosynergy and their phase one clinical trial at Oncosynergy.com. Grief, pain, loss is darkness, the truest darkness, but the truest darkness is not the absence of light or the absence of hope. It is the conviction that the light will never return. However, hope and light always return. We know it when we feel and see things that are familiar to us. A sense of peace, a feeling of happiness or joy, finding purpose or belonging again. And when things entirely new or long overlooked present themselves to us, we feel a sense of possibility. It renews our faith in the unknown, the unseen. It challenges us to pursue the unknown, to be comforted and to find strength in what we have yet to see. Grief and loss may be darkness, the deepest darkness, but it's also a reminder that hope never leaves us. Hope is real. It floats. And all we have to do is look up and believe. Until the end of the month, when we have another new episode of the Game on Glio podcast, thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Game on Glio podcast. 
the podcast that is designed to educate, advocate, and tell the real stories of those walking the journey of brain cancers such as glioblastoma and grief and loss. If you like our show, please share us with others. Follow us on Instagram at Game on Glio Podcast or on Facebook at Game on Glio. You can visit our website and our YouTube channel. You can find us anywhere podcasts are played.